Welcome to Globally Speaking, a podcast about connecting with global audiences. Globally Speaking is designed to explore the challenges involved in breaking down language and communication barriers. Our hosts and guests, thought leaders and industry experts, discuss their experiences on a range of topics relating to content, communication and customer engagement. Welcome to today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Globally Speaking podcast. I am Vasagi Kothandapani. Uh, I am the Senior Vice President of uh, Strategic Accounts at RWS. I head the train AI service line responsible for providing a range of AI data services. And I also manage multiple global accounts. I will be hosting this new AI series of the Globally Speaking podcast. Recently, large language models or LLMs have been in the spotlight, especially with the release of ChatGPT, a user-centered chatbot by OpenAI. In today's podcast, we delve into a captivating topic. Do humans and LLMs learn language in the same way? Joining me are two experts, Marina and Bart, who will provide valuable insights and answer some intriguing questions on this topic. Marina, do you want to go ahead and start your introduction? Um, tell us more about your career path, and I would request the same uh, with Bart as well. Thank you, Vasagi. Pleasure to be here. Well, my name is Marina Pancheva, and I work as a senior group manager at RWS, where I read a versatile team that develops solutions for community-based localization. But by vocation, I am a linguist, and I have academic background in theoretical linguistics. During my PhD and postdoc research, I worked within a framework which was called nanosyntax. Nanosyntax focuses on breaking language down to its elementary particles, the smallest possible particles of language to understand the deep structure of languages, just like nanophysics does. And I am therefore very happy to be on this podcast with my linguist hat on, uh, as I am professionally very intrigued uh, by the linguistic competence of large language models and how their language skills compare to the language skills of humans. Over to you, Bart. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Bart Małczyński. Uh, I'm a VP of Machine Learning at Language Weaver. Uh, we are a group within RWS um, that provides secure, adaptable machine translation for the enterprise and government customers. Uh, I started my career at Trados and worked first with uh, technologies like translation memory, then translation management, terminology management, uh, and so on. And I'm happy to be here to talk about uh, large language models since we uh, see quite a few of uh, their um, capabilities um, allowing us to expand the type of services um, and technologies that we provide to our customer base. Um, And their ability to uh, process human language, natural language is um, very intriguing. Thank you, uh, Marina and Bart. Without uh, further ado, let's uh, deep dive into the questions. Um, My first question is uh, for Marina. Can you explain the fundamental differences between how large language models learn and how humans learn? Thank you, Vasagi. Very nice question. Um, I think that there are four basic differences between how large language models learn and how humans learn, and I will go through each each one of them. The first major differences uh, difference is in how um, 
humans and language, uh, large language models ground language in the world, the grounding in the world, in the actual physical world. Now, human language and language acquisition is grounded in real world experience. Uh, children, as they learn language, they do so in the context of their interactions with the physical world, with the physical people and the object. And it is this interaction with the physical world, this grounding in the world that helps them understand the concepts of words and make connections between the words and their reference, that is the words and what those words stand for as objects. Uh, whereas LLMs, they don't have this grounding in the world. Uh, they do not have sensory experience of the, of the real world. They don't have cognition. So the knowledge that they have is solely derived from the text data that they are trained on and they lack this rich context that the human experience in the real world provides. So that's the first difference. The second difference is uh, social interaction. Humans learn language uh, as they interact with other humans. So children acquire language by interacting with their parents, caregivers, peers, friends, whoever, and they gradually develop uh, their communicative skills. Whereas large language models, they don't engage in any social interactions during the learning process, right? And they don't have the ability to really engage in conversations and ask questions. Um, so that's the second important difference. The third one, um, I consider it one of the most interesting ones, is the biological constraints, the different types of neural networks that underline the human brain and uh, large language models. Now, uh, human language learning is to a very large extent constrained. It's constrained by the biology and by the cognitive development of humans. And we all know that uh, the brains of young children work differently when it comes to language learning than the brains of adults, evidenced by the speed and ease with which children learn language. So the young brains of, the, of young children have uh, certain cognitive abilities which predispose them to acquire language. And there is a critical period throughout childhood during which the brain can acquire language. There is no such critical period for LLMs. They can learn a language in square quotes at any moment, right? They are not undergoing any development uh, in this respect. They're static. And the last difference uh, is the learning mechanism itself. Now, it's, there is a theory that humans have an innate linguistic abilities, which are hardwired in the brain. This is known as the universal grammar uh, hypothesis, which helps them very quickly acquire language uh, with very exposure to very little data, especially compared to an LLM. So a human child needs no more than um, about 5 million tokens to become fluent in a language, whereas LLMs need petabytes of data, billions and billions of tokens uh, in order to be able to reach human level um, language uh, capabilities. And the reason for that is that large language models learn through a statistical process called unsupervised learning, and they need vast amounts of data to analyze the statistical patterns, create associations, and so on, to be able to then generate text based on probabilities. While human children, they have a language acquisition device and certain linguistic constraints hardwired in their brains, which allow them to be such efficient language learners. 
So uh, I am actually fascinated by this comparison between human and machine. And thank you for uh, providing those um, four aspects. Um, I think there are a lot of um, intuitive associations that we make when we study the human language and how machines are able to process it. And, you know, we come up with all those uh, evocative descriptions like hallucinations or neural babble or even attention uh, that show um, tendency to describe our observations um, using language previously reserved for natural phenomena. I think that that we've always had that as, as a civilization. We have software bugs, another natural term. We have horsepower, right? Um, so we use this language and we kind of sometimes extrapolate our expectations and expect that the machine will behave like the, uh, the uh, natural world analog. And I'm a little bit worried about that because um, I think we are in for a surprise and I would not want us to, uh, to expect that um, a natural language-based uh, system will um, conform to our experience and how language is naturally absorbed or used. Uh, you know, for millennia, humans observed birds in order to understand flight. But when I get on a jet airliner from DC to London, I don't expect it to flap wings, right? So I think when those models um, that we build achieve uh, general intelligence, general artificial intelligence, we may not be prepared for, for it. We may not be um, expecting uh, what's going to happen in a, in form of a linear extrapolation of human intelligence. And I think that this is, um, uh, that's why it's particularly important to, to make those distinctions you, the way you did right now. Yeah, to me, actually, LLMs are a tool. They are simply a tool the way an airplane is a tool that helps us move through space much faster. And it doesn't use the same biological mechanism that a bird does. Same with a submarine and fish. And same with a large language model and humans who produce language. It's simply a tool to generate language. But we do tend to anthropomorphize it. And uh, I think we could maybe come back to this topic later on because it's a fascinating topic. How we tend to assign human features to a system that seemingly behaves like a human. And let's say language is one of the three most human things on earth. It's one of the three characteristics uh, of human being. Thank you, uh, Marina and Bart. Uh, it's truly a fascinating topic. Uh, let's, let's deep dive. Uh, my next question is uh, to Bart. Um, LLMs can process massive amounts of text data quickly. How does this rapid learning speed compare to the relatively slower pace of human learning? And what implications does it have for their respective learning processes? So uh, for starters, humans don't need as much energy uh, to process information. I think human brain only uses about 20 watts of power and uh, your computer probably uses 100 watts to run whatever you run on it. Uh, but more seriously, in terms of raw uh, language processing power, the bandwidth, um, humans do not stand a chance um, in, in comparison. To give you one simple example, um, a, a professional translator unassisted by any technology can translate perhaps 2,000 words per day of original text. 
Um, modern neural machine translation systems are faster by orders of magnitude. Um, a few years ago at Language Weaver, we deployed a, an MT system for one of our government customers that could process 500,000 words per minute. So that's, you know, even if you assume eight hour workday, so that's like 120,000 times faster. And uh, the machine can work around the clock and you can have as many of them as, uh, as you can afford, frankly. So, so that's one, one thing. The other uh, aspect that's interesting, I think, is um, the size of our cognitive aperture, um, if you will. We tend to be pretty linear information processes. So even though um, we process more than just language at any given time, there are motoric functions and um, all that machinery within our bodies has to be controlled. Um, the, we, we, we tend to think in, in, in structures that are more linear. Um, at the same time, some LLMs have context windows of 100,000 tokens or more. So that's probably, I don't know, maybe half of Moby Dick. Um, so you could give it a whole article or, or publication all at once only to get uh, one small um, uh, insight from it. Um, and the other difference, I think, is between our input and output speeds. So we can read faster than we can speak, for instance. I tend to read a lot more emails per day than I write responses. But that's perhaps because maybe some of them are less relevant and are information noise. But filtering out noise is also a skill. And um, what I find interesting is that, um, and, and Marina mentioned those limitations when answering the first question, I think over time we came up with various techniques to overcome some of these limitations, um, even before the invention of writing or other technologies um, stories were narrated, you know, in small groups, and they were designed to follow certain linguistic patterns so that they can easier be remembered. And a lot of linguistic devices were invented to achieve various goals. Like, like you can think of poetry as a set of sophisticated compression algorithms, right? Um, designed to evoke a particular association or sensation or emotion. Um, using rhyme and rhythm, consonants, alliteration, they all have a purpose. And we do this all within um, a language, right? Think of a haiku poem, just three lines of, of text, right? Five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables. And somehow it can make you simultaneously observe a minute detail, see it set against a fleeting vignette and maybe zoom out to a reference in the absolute. It's just absolutely fascinating how, how this works. So even um, though we are slower, we are capable uh, perhaps of more nuance and sophistication and discernment in the use of language, at least for now. On the other hand, this is pretty impressive how good LLMs are at writing uh, haiku poems, right? And, you know, they can do things that uh, very few humans can do, like uh, write an email in the style of Churchill or create a Shakespeare sonnet, and they do it very successfully. And I think this is thanks to the vast amount of data that they have, which no human brain can store, right? And the enormous context window that they also have, which doesn't have a counterpart in the human working memory at all. And yet they did not invent the haiku, and they did not generate Churchill and his style. So I think that's... Um, that's the um, one of the differences. 
I suspect that if given or if, if left to their own devices and instructed to use language to communicate, they would develop um, a more efficient use of language that would be um, something we cannot recognize, right? Um, perhaps using single characters for whole concepts and things like that. Uh, that is possible. And coming back to your remark about them not having invented haiku, I think here we touch on what real creativity actually means, because this is the this is the creative power of the human brain. Come up with something nobody else has seen, and it's not present in the training data. Whereas LLMs cannot really deviate from things that are present in the in the uh, training data because they work based on probabilities and they work based on the surface statistics of the data that they consumed. Thank you both. This is getting very interesting now. <laughs> My next question is to Marina. Compared to LLMs, which must be trained with trillions of sentences to achieve linguistic competence, human children may need very little linguistic input. Why is that? Um, this brings me back to the theories of how uh, children learn a language. And there are many theories out there. There is a behavioral theory, statistical theory. But the one theory which, according to me, offers the most compelling uh, explanation of this magic behind uh, language acquisition by uh, children is the universal grammar theory. And according to universal grammar, uh, there are innate inborn uh, constraints in the human brain, hardwired, um, defining what the grammar of a possible human language looks like. So when children are born and they are exposed to linguistic stimuli in their environment, the speech of their parents and their peers, uh, they must derive the syntactic rules, the grammatical rules of their language. And if they had to operate with all the possible grammars that exist, this would be a daunting task, taking too long time. So having the constraints of universal grammar hardwired in their brains narrows down the hypothesis space that children have and helps them arrive at the syntax of their particular language much faster because there is only a limited set of possible grammars that exist called universal grammar and that makes um, and that helps children converge on their grammar within a very reasonably short time that is before they lose the language acquisition device before they lose the plasticity of their brain and they lose their language learning skill uh, which children have um, but large language models, they don't have this innate linguistic uh, bias, or as they call it very aptly, Steven Pinker calls it the language instinct, because it's a language instinct. So large language models don't have a language instinct. For, they can consider any possible grammatical rule. They, for them, there are no constraints, so they wouldn't, you know, for them... Uh, Grammar without any nouns would be a possible grammar, whereas in human languages, there is no grammar that wouldn't have nouns and verbs. Uh, so that's why the learning of LLMs is not constrained, um, and they need this vast amount of data to get to the grammar of the language. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't have sufficient data to derive the grammar. But children need much less data because their hypothesis space is restricted. I have a question for you, Marina, since you studied this. Um, what 
do you think is the evolutionary advantage of losing the language instinct? What, why do you think that the language instinct would be lost? Well, the the the, the learning, the device that the hum, human children have. That I yes, I see. So um, you mean losing the language acquisition the device? Acquisition. Yes. Call it yeah. yes. I think this is the side effect of losing brain plasticity. Because we know that the brain of a child is very plastic, right? It hasn't millionated um, um, enough, so the connections between the neurons are open. This is why it gives you shortcuts so often, you know, and children lose attention and their thoughts are jumping, to put it literally, right? Because they don't have those uh, parts uh, isolated, but throughout adolescence, the brain matures uh, up to, I think the latest theory is up to the age of 30. Uh, so it becomes more efficient uh, because it becomes set. But the price we pay for that is that we lose the ability to learn a language the way children learn the language. We still retain it, right? Adults can still learn a language, but they do it in a different way. They do it analytically. They're not using their instinct. And uh, MRIs show, like research shows, that when you scan the brains of uh, adults who speak uh, second language, which they have learned later on, and their native language, it is different areas of the brain that light up, meaning it's different areas of the brain which are active which suggests a different learning behind those two languages that's fascinating thank you thank you uh, marina that, that's really interesting um, my next question is to bart uh, humans often learn from a mix of structured education and also life sciences or experiences how does the contextual learning of humans contrast with the data-driven learning of llms and what would be the pros and cons of each approach? So um, for me, there are several implications here. I, I think the, the biggest difference is what it is that is actually being learned. And I think we, we already uh, heard a little bit about this from uh, Marina's uh, answers. What is it that the humans are learning and what, what is it that machines are learning? Uh, we may be use, using the same language input, right? But we, I don't think we're learning the same things. So um, language can be used to encode information or data. The data can be organized into knowledge and the, the practice of knowledge, maybe verified by our experience, can lead to, let's call it wisdom, right? And there may be some people among us that would also say that wisdom can lead to enlightenment, but I'm not going to go there yet. Uh, in any case, if you take that progression, language, data, knowledge, wisdom, to me, LLMs with all their power are capable of operating only within part of that system, perhaps up to achieving knowledge, right? They can derive new patterns and insights from data but they are not able to achieve wisdom. They are not able to discern truth, to, to find true relevance, because that requires uh, something more sophisticated and an interplay of those cognitive processes, the emotions, experiences, social interactions. Um, it's about refining or understanding, synthesizing and applying knowledge. So LLMs learn language, we learn the world through language. And it may sound uh, philosophical, but if you agree with this, um, 
that 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 those capabilities stop stop somewhere between knowledge and wisdom, there are practical implications, right? So, if you need to make a decision based on many inputs and parameters, uh, a wide context of of previously established information, LLMs can be very useful um, to help you distill it in no time, so that you can focus on the most important part. Um, I think LLMs are great for these kind of tasks. Um, when you assimilate large information uh, uh, payload, um, and as mentioned, their cognitive aperture is much wider than our minds can achieve, at least in their conscious state. Uh, but remember, LLMs do not have the first-hand hand, uh, life experience. They don't experience reality directly. They're kind of epistemological machines, if you will. So operating in the best case scenario on the sum total of the text generated by humanity. So they are not plugged directly into streams of data coming from various environmental sensors. So that makes them blind to the types of experiences that are not easily encoded in language. Um, maybe they cannot know what's, uh, what's been, um, you know, what's not been written, what's not been said, right? They can only operate what's, what's been provided to them. Uh, so they may not be able to decide what's good or bad or what risks to take and, and things like that. Sounds good, Bart. Um, on the same uh, context, my next question is for Marina. Um, humans learn not only through facts, but also through emotional experiences. LLMs learn from extensive data sets. So do they truly comprehend the information like humans do? Can LLMs grasp emotional nuances in language? And how do their emotionless learning process differ from the way humans learn empathy and emotional intelligence? How does the lack of experiential understanding or sensorial learning impact their learning outcomes? Okay, so I'm going to just say it straight, but LLMs lack true emotional understanding, okay? They are neither emotional, they are nor are they sentient, okay? They just mimic verbal intelligence, but they have no emotional intelligence whatsoever. And whatever appears as emotional intelligence, it is the effect of the interplay between the LLM and the human. Because... Um, while LLMs can generate text that appears emotionally charged, um, they generate the text only based on patterns in their training data, and they don't have emotions themselves. They don't empathize, they don't understand what they're actually generating. Um, so, nevertheless, uh, lots of time humans experience the output of LLMs as emotionally charged, and the reason for that is simple. It is the human who consciously or unconsciously, usually, attributes the emotions to the LLM. And that is because of our tendency to anthropomorphize any tool that seemingly behaves like a human. You know, anything that exhibits human-like behavior would be considered a human-like tool, creature, whatever. And language is a very human-like behavior. There is no other species on the planet that exhibits such behavior, um, such a complex uh, communication system like language. And your question reminded me actually of an early um, experience uh, or like early experiments uh, in the area of uh, natural language processing. And this is the famous uh, program 
created in the 60s called ELISA. I don't know whether you've heard about it. ELISA uh, was a computer code that simulated conversation by using very simple matching patterns. Uh, it was a very simple methodology, but the way it responded to user input created the illusion of understanding what the users were uh, inputting. And what was really shocking is how many of the users who were testing it attributed hu human-like feelings to the computer program. Even more uh, interestingly, some users refused to believe that they were not talking to a real person, even when they were told to. And some even, you know, there's one case described in the literature of a person uh, that became emotionally attached to Eliza, even knowing that it was a code. Um, and wouldn't believe that, you know, wanted to continue um, interacting with the program. In fact, uh, some researchers were against uh, closing, shutting down El ELISA because they thought that it has a very big psychotherapeutic potential uh, for patients, right? So I think a similar thing is happening with LLMs today. We have the tendency to treat them as humans simply because uh, uh, we attribute the, the emotions and empathy and understanding to the text they generate generate, but it is us. It is the human who attributes those uh, uh, qualities to the large language models. It's not that the large language models have those emotions themselves. Um, I, I love that you mentioned Eliza because this, this kind of early empathy hacking, if you will, uh, was not necessarily very sophisticated. So let's say you would say X and the system would say, well, how does X make you feel? Right? And it just shows how extremely well-suited language has become uh, for us biological machines, right? Um, to 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 make us vulnerable to to this kind of um, uh, to this kind of um, um, payload, and um, it could be used for good. It could be used for for negative outcomes as well. Um, but it doesn't have to be very. Um, very sophisticated, and if you follow any, you know, um, political advertising, for example, you can see how primitive some of those messages can be. But they, through language, are able to unlock something in you um, that you identify with a cause or or an ideology. Yeah, I think that seed must fall on fertile ground. I think it's only not every human would become that attached to Eliza. Not every human is susceptible uh, to um, political messages of a certain type. Uh, it is, again, the interaction between the human and the machine that can bring this effect. Thank you, uh, Marina and Bart. Uh, uh, my next question is uh, for Bart. Humans can adapt to new situations, learn from mistakes, and evolve their understanding. How do LLM's learning process compare when it comes to adapting to new information and adjusting their understanding over time? Right. So um, with the crop of LLMs that are currently available, uh, generally, once they are trained, they do not learn from new interactions in the traditional sense. They cannot grow from experience, uh, at least not for now. They can be retrained with new data, which is expensive. Um, uh, recently, I read it also takes a lot of water, apparently, to cool down all these big machines. So another uh, type of impact. 
they can be fine-tuned. Um, they can be provided um, with additional external context in the prompt. That's how you can make them more relevant. But these are all mechanisms that are very different from what humans as lifelong learners can achieve, um, even with the limitations of our bandwidth and, and, and cognitive um, uh, devices that we have. Um, another important aspect is the uniqueness of our voices, right? We, we construct our internal models with each life event and we tune with each experience, each anecdote. Um, LLMs can learn about many events and experiences and anecdotes, but unique perspectives are likely to be obscured into irrelevance due to the rarity. So it's kind of a, um, averaging out the human experience based on what's, what's available in the training process or, or in the training uh, model. Um, I think that um, that is also, um, in a way, conversely, um, awesomely powerful because you can take two LLMs and you can you can exchange their training or exchange their data and you've replicated the information on a scale that um, humans cannot comprehend. If I, if I experience something and I want to share this with Marina, I would have to convert it to language first and she would have to construct a model of my experience from what I told her, which is, a, you know, it's not a lossless process. Um, that's not a problem with LLMs. You can you can you can copy paste models and you can have clones of the same model with the same, let's say, text experience um, operate um, in in thousands, right? So, so that's another aspect of of that. And um, the, here, the the human limitation is um, how we construct our unique uh, experiences. I think. Thank you, Bart. Um, very interesting, actually, the way you put across the limitations versus what could work for a human versus um, the LLM. Um, my next question is for Marina. Humans often rely on intuition and gut feelings to make decisions. How does the data-driven nature of LLMs learning differ from the intuitive and holistic learning process of humans? And what are the implications for decision-making? Um, yeah, well, we already talked a lot about uh, the differences between how LLMs learn, you know, based on purely statistical data and how uh, humans learn grounded in the real world and real world experiences. So I would like to maybe zoom on on the decision making implications and I may be saying something very controversial, but to be frank, there are many decisions for which I would trust an LLM more than a human because we humans have a weakness. Uh, we have lots of cognitive biases, which are, again, hardwired or they are part of our nature uh, and they are misleading us when we are making decisions. Uh, it is precisely this uh, intuitive and holistic nature of our reasoning that, uh, that brings so many fallacies uh, of reasoning just to name a few, right? We have the availability bias. This is the tendency of humans to imagine an event much more likely, much more probable, based on the readiness and ease with which they can recall 
similar events, or they can imagine an example, right? So if you read in the newspaper about people being hit by cars every day, you think it is a very high risk um, you know, event to cross a certain street in a certain way. But you don't know because you, you, there might be things that are much more risky than that that you are not aware of because you cannot recall examples because, for example, those are not in the, in the media, right? Also, something that has happened to yourself, you, you imagine it much more likely to ha- happen to others. You're much more careful. You consider it higher risk. There are other cognitive biases that we have, the uh, my side bias or the confirmation bias through which we have the tendency to remember information uh, that supports us our prior beliefs, uh, to give more weight to arguments that support our prior beliefs and our um, religion uh, convictions and so on. Uh, We are reasoning based on stereotypes and we are generally taking lots of reasoning shortcuts when we are reaching a decision. There is a good reason for that, right? We have evolved on the Great Plains of Africa and uh, we didn't live back then in a world full of data. Right, so we had to develop these cognitive shortcuts uh, when we were doing risk assessment. We we had to make a decision, predict the future, and so on. But now we live in the world of data, and our brain is not ready to cope with all that data. We make a lot of mistakes when uh, running our internal statistics. Right, there are lots of examples of how humans um, are um, evaluating risk and probabilities wrongly, uh, and for that. I would trust an LLM much more. So when it comes to making decisions based on data, certainly an LLM has the advantage of not having all the shortcuts and the cognitive biases that humans have. Humans have an advantage of making decisions where emotions, social interactions are involved. But when it comes to pure logic and database decisions, I would go to an artificial intelligence model. Thank you, uh, Marina. Uh, a nice segue into uh, the last topic for today, ethics and bias. My next question is to uh, Bart. LLMs don't possess ethical understanding in the way humans do. How does their lack of ethical intuition impact the way they process and generate content? And how do these differences raise important ethical considerations in their use? Yes, so um, I agree. Um, LLMs do not possess consciousness, emotions, inherent moral values, Um, not even on the level that we are able to observe in some animals like compassion or altruism, for example. Um, They are a reflection of their training data and the intentions of their creators. For most of the available models, like GPT or BARD and many others, a lot of effort was invested to make them seem to behave ethically, right? So, for example, they would not spread information on how to make a bomb or or hurt someone. But that's just a safety feature. That's an alignment, as as it's called in the industry, imposed by the manufacturer. Um, LLMs are a tool. And the ethical considerations for its use are responsibility of us humans, our society, both of, of, of us who use LLMs that someone built, as well as the people that build them. Um, 
I think this debate has only now started and, and there is a long way to go. Um, we have some precedents there. There are tools and technologies that are so powerful, we, we recognize the need to regulate their proliferation and their use, right? Motor vehicles are generally required to have working brakes. Um, their operators are generally required to learn how to use those brakes, right? So, so these kinds of things um, are subject to legislation, regulation, and that's great because I don't think my neighbor should be able to operate a hobby nuclear power station in his backyard, right? Um, and I think this extends onto any tool or technology that we are able to think up. And with LLMs, I think there are certain aspects that, that I think we, we touched on in, in this conversation that make them potentially extremely dangerous if used with bad intentions. Um, and we, we talked about this fertile ground for certain types of messaging. So LLMs are language manipulators par excellence. Right? And in combination with media, the language amplifier, they can be used to reach and influence many people all at once. We are predisposed to be vulnerable to, let's call it linguistic manipulation. Look at religion, mythologies, ideologies, politics, advertising. So the danger of using LLMs to craft a specific linguistic payload that persuades target audiences to do something is real. And I think that is the real ethical question here. And in this respect, uh, Bart, I have a question for you. So as you're talking about the dangers of uh, misusing uh, LLMs as a tool, uh, what are your uh, thoughts about LLMs and artificial intelligence in general or like general artificial intelligence um, posing an existential threat to humanity? You know, we've all watched the movies, we've read books, and now it's again a topic, you know, how dangerous artificial intelligence out of control can be. Uh, very dangerous. Um, I, I consider myself a technology enthusiast, yet uh, I worry about these things um, because of the human limitations. So I think we we consider ourselves, um, you know, at the top of our food chain, so to speak, on this beautiful planet. And we achieved that not because we are strongest, fastest, or have the biggest teeth or claws, but because um, of how we are able to process information, retain it through generations, and, uh, and use it in a collective manner, not just as individuals. Uh, and I think this is the first time there is a new entity on the market able to compete so, for example, uh, many, you know, concrete example, if you put machine in charge of, um, uh, I don't know, managing the stock market and it doesn't like certain patterns, uh, it can make decisions very swiftly on a level that we are not able to comprehend um, that will affect the livelihood of millions of people in very, um, very long consequences. Um, you know, it. I'll give you another example. I don't know if you have those one of those um, uh, vacuum cleaners, the Roomba, right? My best friend. 
Right. Well, so if your best friend Roomba is equipped with some kind of um, uh, advanced um, artificial intelligence, always cleans up after you, and its main goal, its prerogative is to keep the house clean, it can consider you an obstacle to the cleanliness of your house and maybe would like to remove you from that equation for to simplify the situation. So, so the question is, how do we encode the limitations so that the system doesn't uh, doesn't um, uh, come up with with unpredictable uh, outcomes? Yeah, I, I think this is very very worrisome. Um, there is also a kind of more maybe uh, human level worry as a as a parent because uh, I have. Um, it's going to be increasingly more difficult to encourage children to do and learn and be uh, uh, be active and uh, driven if more and more of cognitive functions can be outsourced to a machine. And I don't think I would like to live in that kind of society where you don't have to really take things into your own hands anymore um, because that would not be a fun place to be. Now, maybe I am just, you know, uh, wrong on this one, but I think there is a, there is a non-zero chance that it's easier to find yourself in a comfortable um, situation rather than a situation that requires effort. On this, let me just add um, regarding children and uh, how they may outsource uh, cognitive um, tasks to machines uh, to have it simpler. I always thought that uh, they would do so with those cognitive tasks which are uh, boring, uh, repetitive, uh, so that and they will free up space for doing even more exciting things, coming with even greater ideas. So I prefer to be an optimist and think of that just like, you know, calculator, right? I mean, we have now calculators, but this allows uh, students at school to actually progress with math faster. They don't need to um, practice so much uh, mental calculation because they can just use their calculators, at least in the high schools they do. Um, so they can actually progress faster and they learn more of math than if they wouldn't have the calculators. I choose to think about LLMs and artificial intelligence the same way. I, I like this perspective, right? If I want to go and enjoy um, a hike in the mountains, I will need um, a pair of boots and a pair of glasses. <laughs> Both are technologies I'm fond of, right? They will uh, allow me to or enable me to experience that rather than prevent me from doing it. Um, but I don't want to be in a situation where um, a young person finds it easier to experience that um, um, you know, uh, artificial walk in the walk in the mountains that is provided by all the sensors and and uh, virtual reality devices. So I think that's 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 the distinction I would make. But um, I think we should we should finish on an uh, optimistic note. I think that these technologies are fascinating. They are absolutely marvelous. Um, they perhaps can empower us and amplify our uniqueness if used properly. Um, and um, soon we all will have one on our phones, um, I think.
I agree. Um, uh, I think LLM is a great technological advancement and uh, we should be using them for the right applications with the right guardrails. Um, thank you so much for this interesting discussion and uh, thank you to all our listeners for joining us for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as I did. See you next time for another episode about AI. Thank you.